This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. This is Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business, and we have a really special guest this week. I am in the studio with Dennis McNamara. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Richard, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here uh, on the campus of CW Post. And I must admit, I haven't been at the radio station here for a while, and they fixed it up really nice. I well, thank it. you. Yeah. I'll make sure to pass that along. Yeah, nice. So for the people out there, if you were to hop on your computers and do a, 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 a search on Dennis McNamara, you would see that he is an incredibly important person in the world of Long Island, music, entertainment, radio, uh, and all kinds of endeavors, and has played, was one of the first people to really play the music of a lot of bands that are now super famous. Now, let's talk about how it all started, because I know that we're here today, but let's hit the rewind button and go back to the beginning. Wow. Okay, well, you know, I was... Uh I was a kid of immigrants, Irish immigrants, born in New York. Uh, we lived in Harlem then, and so I was born in Manhattan, and uh, then we moved uptown for uh, a little while over towards the Grand Concourse, and then um, I'm still like two or three then, and then we made our way up to the north, uh, the northwestern Bronx and uh, an area called Riverdale. And, uh, we lived in Riverdale had a couple of, uh, different, uh, societal segments. So we were not in the mansion area and we were not in the <laughs> high rise area. However, we were, um, we were, I guess, comfortably, um, middle class. Uh, I, I went to school with a lot of other immigrant kids from various places. Um, there were a lot of, you know, parents who were cops and firemen and taxi drivers in the neighborhood. And so, and I, I had a very Catholic upbringing and I, um, at some point had my life kind of swung around. It just came at the right time in the right place. And this British band from England went on Ed Sullivan and the Beatles really impacted on me. I had listened to their music. I had just started listening to the radio and I became a, a rabid fan of the Beatles and everything that had to do with the British pop kind of um, revolution at that point in time in the 60s. I think I was 11 or 12 years old when I started. We were pretty free around the city in those days, so I would go to... Um, I'd also listen to uh, WMCA and WABC and 1010 Winds, and I loved those radio stations. And I was one of those uh, kids that had the transistor under the pillow at night. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, and, and in some, and for a little while, MCA used to have the top five at 10 or something like that. And I'd listen to see what songs were coming in. And I was always, you know, picking up the charts at the local record stores. And I loved records. I bought records like crazy. And, and basically, I, um, I became encyclopedic about it, and in many ways, it was just a—it was just a pure form of enjoyment for me. I mean, I went to high school uh, in Manhattan, and by that point, um, I had grown up in music. It seemed like, and I, I started uh, going to the Fillmore East when that came about. Wow! And you know, there was a bookstore around the corner that was the ticket outlet from my high school. It was an all-boy Catholic high school, and then uh, eventually. Um, you know, I just started going to the Fillmore every week, it seemed like, and 
checking out um, tickets were so cheap then when you look back on it. I think maybe they were seven bucks or five bucks. And we didn't realize we were never getting great seats because we were in some block owned by this bookstore <laughs> or whatever. I, I had no idea how the business worked, but I started reading tip sheets and trade publications even back then. But I, I'd go, you know, we'd always go to see the airplane. And then we were there the night uh, that Led Zeppelin did their first concert opening for Iron Butterfly. Wow. And that was pretty amazing. And um, I saw Elton John open for Leon Russell and, um, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young when they went there. And, of course, The Who. And I saw The Who do the rock opera, Tommy, at the, the Metropolitan Opera. And then the Fillmore, unfortunately, it was closing, but I remember I saw traffic there when they reunited and the Barleycorn record came out. So I was still in high school for that. And then I went to NYU. Um, and at NYU, I had one stop, you know, for like a year at St. John's and I transferred from there to NYU because I wanted to be at a college with an active radio station. What was the, what was the radio station at St. John's? They didn't have one at the time I was there. Oh, so that's why you transferred out. So I transferred out. out. Yeah, I went to I went to NYU because they had a radio station. Now it was a shared frequency with WFDU out of New Jersey, fairly Dickinson University. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, and um, it was it, it's on the old uh, UN frequency. So when the FCC divvied it out, they shared it to two colleges, and that's how NYU was on. Um, I'm, I think it's still the same setup, basically, where NYU was on um, from four in the afternoon. To one in the morning. I don't know why these hours were, were done. And of course, NYU missed, you know, the whole day, daytime just about. But, and then they, the other station was on, on the weekends also, which I, I never thought was all that fair. But I, you know what? I, I just lived in the radio station. I started working at, uh, WNEW. I got an internship through, I was a journalism major at NYU and I, um, I went there and, um, became very friendly with the guys in FM. I got to know Scott Munia, Richard Neer, who was a, a great, great inspiration and helped to me in my radio endeavors. But all of them were terrific. Dennis Elsis and, you know, Pete Fornitel and Dave Herman. Allison Steele was nice to me. I used to have the to, Nightbird. I used to have to walk the Nightbird down to get to her car because there were people that might bother her. And I was always thinking, what's this little, you know, Irish American kid from the Bronx going to do if anybody <laughs> attacks? Because, I mean, you know, Allie was bigger than me at that point in time. Taller. <laughs> Very sleek looking woman very nice lady and a, and a magnificent voice and approach on the radio a velvet voice yes. oh she she was great she invented a lot of stuff that we took for granted but you know um and again what i learned in those days and i came up on radio in new york i loved radio in new york i loved the wmca good guys i loved wa C. I loved what abc became uh, it was just one of the greatest top 40 stations anyone could have. And it was very, uh, you know, it was proudly a New York great station. Um, MCA, I loved and I, I missed them because they were, they were really hysterical in their day. I loved Murray the K and uh, 1010 Wins. And I used to go to the Brooklyn Fox shows where you could go see the rock shows and the bands would play and you see a movie and the bands come out and play again. And we sometimes we'd go like for the nine or 10 in the morning show and we'd stay there till eight o'clock at night <laughs> just to see the bands playing over and over and over. And, and we were really young then. This was when I'm 13 and 14. That's the first place I saw little Anthony and the Imperials wow. and all these years fast forward. Um, 
I actually inducted little Anthony and the Imperials into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame at the induction ceremony, and we had become friends over the years. And they were, I, and you know, I was, I, I always say, you guys were the first time I ever saw an RB act live. It was the most amazing thing. The lights would go out, and their cuffs would be lighting up in the dark, and oh, they'd be a, doing all awesome. these amazing dance things. I'd never seen, you know, little kid from the Bronx comes into Brooklyn, and this is what you see. It was just amazing. Murray had every big band there, and you know, they did three songs and went, oh, I saw, you know, when I got inducted myself on the Hall of Fame, one of those being inducted was Mary Weiss, the lead singer for representing the Shangri-Las. And I remember being at the Brooklyn Fox and seeing Mary ride out on the back of a motorcycle and get off and sing Leader of the Pack. I mean, it was one of the most <laughs> amazing things I'd ever seen. I was like, oh, my God. God, this is just crazy, you know? I mean, seeing, you know, bands like Gary Lewis and the Playboys and stuff like that with Leon Russell playing with them. I'm not sure if he was on that gig, but I wouldn't have known. I remember I met the Zombies. Yeah. I met Cannibal and the Headhunters. You know, I used to have a little autograph book and stuff like that. I love. Do you those. still have it? No, I can't <laughs> find it. It's with my baseball cards, whatever my mom did with those. Um, but you know what? I just loved the whole thing. I just loved rock and roll. I loved being in the village and going to college there uh, during that time, you know, of the early 70s. We'd have the most amazing people come by the radio station and hang out. Phil Oaks. I mean, the National Lampoon people, Chevy Chase would be up there, or Gilda Radner. And I can remember I had a Reef Martin come down, talk about making Rascals albums. And I had Dave Herman come in one day, and people were going crazy because Dave Herman was up at the radio station. It was just really, really an exciting time. I ended up, uh, you know, I went on and had a Carrier Current show. We had an AM at the time that only ran on the campus. And then... Just as the FM came, um, I had been music director and I started building good credibility for the station and dealing with the record companies and everything. And um, I was made, um, I was elected general manager. And just as that time, we went on the air FM. And a couple of guys at the station came up with this great idea to bring the concerts from the new club down the street, the bottom line, uh. onto the air. So I went in and negotiated with Alan and Stanley, Alan Pepper and Stanley Sandowski, who ran the bottom line. And they were just wonderful people. And they, I think, you know, they, they thought the whole idea was kind of cute in a way. But as they said, this is a way we could archive everyone that comes through the club. And, um, you know, all these years later, it's been now released as a CD um, thing, which I think is great because um, they really, really ran one of the best you know, clubs in America, in the world, really, in, in that place. And I was lucky enough to be behind the scenes from the very beginning of it. So because of that, I mean, at one point, Muni and them pulled me in to uh, try to uh, ride um, herd on um, Bruce Springsteen's manager at the time, the one he had all the trouble with, because uh, there was the live, the famous live broadcast, the Born to Run live broadcast on NEW. So I ended up being one of the producers for Bruce's, you know, big broadcast and everything. And that was, in many ways, where my uh, radio concert career started, which was a happy accident. I was, you know, I negotiated with the bands and the artists and got the clearances and things like that. I, in the meantime, I wanted to work at NEW. And then Scott Muni um, was helping me, along with Richard Neer. And I was working on tapes, and I can't believe now, you know, that Scott Meany was taking time out of being the most important rock jock in America to sit down with me and go, you know, you got to do work on this, you got to do this, but you're getting it this way, and you need some seasoning, he used to say. 
And what do you mean by that? Seasoning? seasoning? I needed to mature. I needed okay. to become, you know, less of a fan and more of a radio announcer. He okay. loved the fan. I, I now recognize that after all these years, why he was putting up with me, because I was, I mean, everybody at that station back in those days used to ask me what I was listening to. I'd come in and tell them about tracks. I was the music director at WNYU. I mean, Richard Neer was always talking music with me, and I'd have to, because I was working there, come in at three or four in the morning to change, you know, the machines for the newsroom. There were a lot of machines in those days, ticker tape machines and, and, and the wires, and the wires were very important. And this was, you know, back in the Watergate era. So right, right. I was working in the newsroom then for a while, too. So I was running WNYU and working in the newsroom at NEW and always, like, you know, spending time down at, at the FM. And I don't know when we slept, you know, when we were in college, we didn't know. And long story, um, even longer here is that then um, Muni had me send out tapes to stations and LIR got back and he called them and said, you know, you should hire this guy. You know, this kid. He always called me the kid. And when I went to work there, I know how I got into this because of Murray the K. When I got into work that uh, morning, I, I remember I went on the air at 1 a.m. First song I ever played on LIR, The Rolling Stones, Till the Next Goodbye, because I was being a wise ass and it was a current <laughs> Stones album. And, um, <laughs> boy, and you know, so I, so ironic in so many ways. And, um, the announcer on after me was the other new part timer, Murray the K. And it was amazing. And, you know, um, poor Murray, they gave him a hard time there, which was unfortunate. Um, cause I wish Murray had been around when we did the, uh, Dare to Be Different format because I always thought Murray would have gotten that in a second. He would have loved that. That would have been his kind of thing. It would have been a great morning show. We used to talk about that sometimes. Anyway, that's uh, kind of uh, a rather uh, long-winded but short bio I, I, I loved, from the early days. I, I, I loved every minute of it, and I could really relate to a lot of it because when I was a kid, I had a, I guess it was a, a Radio Shack. It was a realistic transistor radio. It was probably two by two. It was white and probably about a, 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 little, about, about a, little, a little over an inch thick. It had a silver screen. I don't know if it had, if it had much of an antenna. But I would put it under my pillow and listen to WABC right. at night before I go to sleep. And I remember one thing that ABC did that no one else really has done before or since, which is they would take a song. If it was really popular, they'd go, replay, replay. That's right. And they would play yeah. it again. Yeah. And they didn't do that for a long time. And then they dropped it and then they brought it back. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. But the man who um, programmed WABC for a long time was a guy, a fellow named Rick Sklar. Very, very, uh, you know, a well thought of guy in the business and, and seemed like a good guy. I was very young at that time, but he wrote a book. I don't even know if it's in print anymore about how he based running radio station like the NASA program where everything had a backup system and every, and you know, ABC was run big time. And if anybody ever really wants to understand some of, um, how radio programming was done well in America and programmatics were done and also the ability to match personalities and allow radio personalities to work within a framework. Rick Sklar's book is the best. I got to go read that. It is amazing. You know, one thing that re resonated with me is I, I got into radio because I was such a fan too. Uh, you know, in pre-production, we were talking about Cousin Brucey. Yeah. And yeah. I used to listen to Cousin Brucey. I love Brucey. He's the best. And, and here I am interviewing him. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, you know, it's like the full circle. You're going from fan to fan announcer kind of thing, journalist. So I, I totally relate because I've always loved radio. And I guess I grew up a little bit right behind all of that because, you know, the first, the first 
45 I purchased was light my fire by the doors. And I remember my cousin <laughs> uh, had the, the, the long version of it. And like, cause light my fire, the, the, the two minute and 50 something version versus, versus the, the eight, minute. Seven, eight minute version. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That was one of the first songs I realized they did that to, you know, they did it to Inagata DeVita and a couple others, but the, the, the doing it to the doors, we all found out and we all felt robbed. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, what, what was the first album you, what was the first album you remember buying? What was the first 45 you first remember? First 45 buying? was I want to hold your hand. I wanted it and I got it and I just played it and played it. I owned a lot of 45s. And when I was a little kid, I worked at a movie theater and gave out posters. And if you put the poster in the shop, I'd give you a free pass. And there was a place in Yonkers, because I live right on the border of uh, the Bronx and Yonkers on the Bronx side. And there was a place in Yonkers that was a jukebox uh, rack jobber. And they used to put the records into jukeboxes in the diners and the restaurants and things like that. And they would resell the um, the used ones out of the jukeboxes for like a quarter each or 10 cents each or something like that. And because I got friendly with the woman that was working in the store... I would put up three posters in there. She'd get three <laughs> passes, and she'd let me take as many 45s as I wanted. So I was literally taking on boxes of 45s, and I was... I didn't know who half the bands were. I had every kind of cool R&B, jazz singles, all kinds of stuff, um, radio edits. And, and I was listening to tons and tons of things. And I always rem I, I remember the joy of that, of bringing them home and, you know, all those colorful labels. And, you know, in those days, there were so many indie labels as opposed to, you know, the, the, mass, the, the giant mass yeah, ones. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, that was so formative in my love of music. I used to listen to every A-side and B-side. And I... I carried that with me through my whole history of music programming. Now, this is like the fastest, you know, first segment of radio. This is Richard Solomon with Dennis McNamara. We will continue our discussion. And when we go off for break, I'm going to ask him whatever happened to all those 45s. Keep oh, it yeah. And also, I got to mention, because I, one of the, the reasons I'm able to do this is uh, there, there's a, a WLIR documentary that is going to be um, featured on Long Island for the first time ever after being shown only at Tribeca in, in L.A. where it won awards. And so um, we're going to tell you how to get the ticket information for that. We're going to get to all that. We'll be yeah. right back. Keep it locked in. Richard Solomon, Dennis McNamara, taking care of business. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rory Cosgrove, and you're listening to Rich Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Welcome back. This is Richard Solomon. I am proud to say with Dennis McNamara, we actually have in this segment of the show a whole studio audience with us. So uh, welcome to all those people. Got got Mike oh, Epstein, Epstein, and we have Seth. We got Peter, who's uh, filming and streaming. So this is like becoming like a. Uh, World class. Pretty soon they're going to open a club here. They're going to have band in. <laughs> they're going to start, you know, serving drinks. It'll be fun. Yeah. Um, and they'll probably do it like that. Yeah, yeah, that would be the way to do it. Anyway. Um, so there was this, you had, you had a treasure trove of 45s. You were I, I was really, you know, because I had this unique situation. I was getting all these used 45s from the jukebox. Um, I was totally, you know, into this music. And then when I got to the radio station, I'll be honest, I was spending so much money on music besides getting the free 45s. I would go to the Fordham Road in the Bronx, get my albums, you know, try and buy import albums, even at that stage in the game. And I would um, basically 
spend all my allowance money or the money I make. I, I used to work all kinds of odd jobs, like I said, in the movie theater. Later on in college, I was driving a yellow cab all around New York while I was the music director for WNYU and also working in you know the newsroom at NEW and spending time with Scott Muni and Richard Neer and those people. So there was this whole thing going on all the time about the records. And the solution I discovered was by being the music director at a college radio station or at a professional radio station, you got all the records for free. So I figured this is great. If I could stay in this business and do this, I can get my records for free. And that was a driving force to a large degree with a lot of this. And then I loved the whole scene. And like I told you, starting to do the radio concerts. And then when I got to LIR, you know, then, then everything changed in a much bigger way. How so? Because LIR, first of all, was real radio. Even though college radio is real radio, to me, I needed to be on a real radio station, meaning L a commercial station. A little bit more juice. Yeah, a little more juice and just, you know, then you were getting paid for it. You know, college was pro bono and it was great pro bono. But um, it was um, it was amazing to work at a radio station, you know, a commercial one. Uh, I always remember driving in at that point. I was living in um, Manhattan, probably down in the village, and driving to Long Island and not really knowing where I was and getting off. And the way I came in then was so all over the place because I didn't know Long Island like I grew to know it. And I'd be driving in there and I'd be hearing the songs on the radio thinking, boy, in about 15, 20 minutes, that's going to be me playing those songs. And I got to be great. And, you know, we were freeform back then, basically. We had some basic thematics, but the idea was that you were really competing against the other DJs, especially because they'll go, I just played a great show and this and that. And you'd have to look at their list, figure in your head, okay, I don't want to play the Stones. They just played the Stones. I don't want to play Buffalo Springfield. They just played Buffalo Springfield. But I want to blow people away, so I have this new British band, that, you know, the Straubs. And I'm going to play them and tell everybody how great it is. And then I'll play it into, I don't know, the Beatles and Hendrix to show, you know, that it matches up with them. The ideas of programming back then came from so many different places at so many times. We were so into segues. We wanted the music to dissolve like the greatest film. Not just a, you know, not just an average film, but like a really cool foreign film, you know, that you'd see in the college neighborhood or whatever. And we wanted those themes to make sense you know about climbing mountains and going down into valleys and we wanted soft songs and really raunchy songs and Jimi hendrix playing guitar and maybe you'd sneak in copeland you know because that would be classical and cool and the guys from long island or maybe you know you'd sneak in coltrane who was jazz and cool and from long island or whatever but you were doing these especially in the middle of the night you were just trying to blow people away and be cool and there were so many ways to be cool then. So I guess about the technology. So at that time, it was a turntables and vinyl, and then you queue up uh, one song, fade out, and then fade in. Yeah. Well, we would. Um, we um, I don't know at what time we got it. We knew any W had three turntables, so we got three turntables. And the beauty of the third turntable. Ray White and I were just talking about that recently at the WLIR movie premiere. But the um, the thing was, you'd be staring at this giant wall of records. You'd be playing whatever you had on the air and thinking, okay, where am I taking everyone now? 
where are we going to sail? You know, if Laura Nero's playing on there, do you want to really go to Joni Mitchell? Or do you want to go to Led Zeppelin going to California, which is Joni Mitchell mixed in, you know, with the whole thing? You'd be coming up with these thematic things in your head. And you'd be, you know, studying every new record that came in, trying to get that across. And so you really, you know, you were really kind of almost mystical about it, religious about it. But even with the three turntables... The records would run out. There's nothing scarier than programming radio and having the record run out. You know, so sometimes you'd make the hastiest decision and decide, I'm going to just go for it. And you'd go down there. But the third turntable enabled us every now and then, if we thought of it, to have an emergency record on. So it would be queued up and ready to go when you suddenly went blank and stared at the wall and realized that the Beatles only had one more minute left on this track and you know we didn't have all these fancy timing things back then we'd be looking at the records thinking oh, it looks like it's about 40 seconds or something <laughs> like that i think but you never know the grooves can be tight but um y- y- it was a whole different dynamic so technologically i mean hell we were dealing with vinyl Q-Burn, <laughs> you didn't want to have Q-Burn in the front of your stuff. Um, changing speeds on the records because some dolt would leave it in 45 and you'd put your 33 down. You know, those were, that's about the extent of the technology. And, you know, as long as transmitters stayed on and people knew where to pick up the frequency, you know, that's what you were counting on at that point in time. Yes, we had cart machines. I was going to ask something completely different, which yeah. will probably blow a lot of people away from the audience, because they probably haven't heard this term on the radio in a long time. But did you guys have the disc washer? Do you remember the disc washer? Of course. Which was like the way to sort of, of remove, it was sort of like a de-linter for the dust. Absolutely. <laughs> we had that, and we had all kinds of stuff that you poured on, and eventually you realized water was the best thing. And also, we knew all the tricks of putting your finger you know i have shaky hands i've always had them even as a kid but for some reason i could put my finger down on a needle that was playing over a scratch and hold it down there to keep it keep it in groove and keep it going beat into the rest of the record and then throw the record out you know afterwards i mean that was something that was always a problem in radio stations like lir new and any of the freeform stations back then is um if you had anybody that were you know basically pigs with records meaning they disregarded them put their fingers all over them or left their bubble gum on them or yeah, yeah sat on them and stuff like that those were the people that you had to weed out and straighten out real fast because especially when we were getting in imports and things like that they were irreplaceable and we didn't even have stereo carts back then you know i always as a policy when um, the stereo cart machine came in, I made sure that whenever we got an import, we mastered it as soon as possible onto the stereo cart as a backup. Because, Brilliant. you know, sooner or later, some mishap was going to happen or it was going to scratch or wear down. Did you ever record your entire show and then sort of listen to it later just to see what it was like? Air check is what we call that. No, but I mean, like, like to take it home or do something. Always. In yeah, fact, yeah. we had a skimmer tape in the um, in the LIR control room that would skim, so you would only hear the back announcers. You wouldn't have to hear the whole record, because if you were do, and it was for your own good to do. Or if I was as program director, if I wanted to listen to somebody's show, I'd say, bring me an air check. Got it. And they could give it to me. But usually what I would do is on the programming director's side was go out for a ride in the car and listen to the air check with the announcer as if we were listening on the radio. And and, and basically, they, that wasn't so much about 
correcting it was really about teaching and moving forward, you know, or saying this worked, but why couldn't this work better? It was really, that was akin to directing, uh, much like uh, dramatic dramatic directing, you know, like for plays or for movies or things like that, where you're actually getting performances out of people. But that was a different usage for it. When you did, when you listened to your first round of air checks, mm-hmm. what did you learn about your style and your voice? It was all horrible to me. I mean, on a personal basis, I think it is to many people. In fact, over the years, the ones I find that think they sound really great are a little bit, you know, in the denial (laughs) area. Um, No, because you know what? It's tough to get used to listening to your own voice. I I totally get that. then Then it gets tough to think, you know, as if you can somehow be removed from it to actually be able to say, Oh, well, this sounds pretty good. This is, I would listen to a radio station like that. It takes a lot of effort and work and energy to train and then train others to do exactly that. Say, okay, this is just a radio station playing. Listen to it as that. And, you know, it's it's self discipline, but there's nothing um, that calls for direction more than doing live performance and radio was until most recently almost always live performance see, that's why i have such great respect and honor for what you guys did because see i'm just a talk show guy so to me it's just conversation right and as a lawyer i'm used to conversation and i'm used to asking sure. questions sure. so that's easy yeah but to actually figure out the timing and mixing and and tempo and and going from like one like you said, you know, going from the Beatles to the Stones to maybe something a little more mellow, something a little bit more, you know, enthusiastic, a little bit edgy, like, you know, a little Hendrix, you know. And remember, it was always growing. You know, next week, Jethro Tull arrived. Then Grand Funk Railroad. You know, things just kept arriving and arriving and arriving. And it was a never-ending um bunch of blessings you know they'd come in and go i gotta listen to this gotta listen to that gotta you know clapton hendrix you know all of a sudden these guitarists and then you know you move forward in it and it's van halen and johnny marr you know and all of that but the the road of music and it matches with our lives our lives keep unrolling too so and, and you're capturing what you hoped back then was to bring this music that was so important to our lives into your life, into the life of the person that was listening. I mean, it really was as serious as that. Well, and they, as deep as that, even though we're still looking for hit records and, you know, trying to play the commercials on time. So, well, you know, you're almost like sculptors because you're, you're organizing the soundtrack of our lives. Well, so, we were, yeah, yeah, before they had the machines do it now or the, yeah, the satellites do it now, whatever they have algorithms right, but, do. But it. it was actually your personal taste and style that that brought all of that out there to us to a large degree mixed with the realization and hopefully the ability to go beyond just your own tastes and recognize that other people had tastes and there were other areas of interest that you may not entirely love but you recognize there's a need for out there and a demand and also it allows you to use those to also bounce off 
the great stuff you love and know so well and can mix in with it to make it a, a, a kind of a not only a great experience but a very comfortable one as a listener jumping ahead just for a second do you miss being in the studio and and playing music and talking to the people out there who are listening well i do a show uh, almost every friday on usb for a couple of hours okay so that gets my music jones out you know where i i feel uh, you know i'm i'm in this place now where i feel that there's a lot there's a great deal of music from all of the lir represented um eras that isn't heard anywhere anymore and um i and i'm i i'm of the belief that it needs to be heard. It needs some air. Yeah. It needs some yeah, air. Yeah, and, and you know what? If I feel if I could put some of that out, like I and I do it on YouTube and, you know, Facebook too. If I feel like for a while there I felt the clash were forgotten, so every day I was putting a clash song on my Facebook page. Just because I felt people need another shot at checking out the clash because they were really spot on in ways that we couldn't have even realized back then. And they are as, you know, important in their own way, as as the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and Zeppelin and the Clash should never be overlooked. And you know what? Unless people like I do it and other people who care about that music and its importance and that you want it to live on. Because what I have discovered talking to a lot of young people in, 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 the, in the more recent times is that they're very open to great music and they don't seem to hold the kind of prejudices towards it being old or somebody else's music that used to happen. They, they, there seems to be an openness now to just discovering great music from all kinds of periods. And you know what? It's happening in mass media. You're hearing music on commercials you never thought you would have heard on commercials. And again, all of this shows that there is um, a growing openness to exploring these fields. But, you know, they're so diverse... And we have so many ways of having our attention taken in, in, in these modern times that there's a need for, a, and you know, there's a better word for it than curator, but that's what I used to describe it. People like me, I think, can be curators to great music that, uh, you know what, should at least be re-explored and given to other age groups and things like that. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from now on what I would like to do with it. And I think, you know what, anything exposing the time periods that we came from, you know, the LIRs, the DREs, the NYUs, and now the WCWPs, you know, that these things, the more that they're expanded upon um, and, and made available, and, and the more, you know, that they are really taking this challenge. Like, I challenge myself if I do something now to find the best possible music, because I realize I may not get another chance to do it. Well, what, I th- what I've seen is that there's a tremendous hunger out there for, for good music and new music. And I'd like to believe that. I, I, I don't know that I know that, but I, I'd like to believe I, I that. I see that. I see that in many places because when I was growing up, <clears throat> pardon me, when I was growing up, music was everywhere. It really was. And it was rich and it was new and it was expansive. And the, there never seemed to be an, an end to the great new things that you, you go to the record store and you would look forward to just accidentally discovering, hey, here's the new this album or, hey, the Starship just came. I would go to Corvettes and, wow, Spitfire just came out mm-hmm. or War yeah. Child was there. And because, um, you know, already had Thick as a Brick and Aqualung, all of a sudden, you know, War Child was around or um, Adventures in Utopia or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you'd go, wow. 
And now we don't have the Tower Records. We don't have – I went to Sam, the record man in Canada. I think I bought up the store because the, the, uh, the, the exchange rate was like – an album with everything was like five bucks American. Wow. So you go, so you go to Canada <laughs> and, and you can get like, you know, uh, 50 albums, you know, for five bucks each, whereas here it costs you, you know, five times as much. Right, right. So, so with that, I'm going to take a quick break right here. We're going to continue. This is Dennis McNamara. Oh, what, what, so you, you, your show is on Fridays. Or what channel? Where can people listen to you? Um, WUSB 90.1. I'm not on every Friday, but just about every Friday. And you have a Facebook uh, 10 page? 10 to 12. And, um, yeah, the Facebook page is under my name. So, yeah. But, um, and also, in terms of the WLIR movie, I should mention that page is called Dare to be Different. Which right. is the name of the film. We're going to talk about daring to be different. We're on the other side of this break, we'll be right back. Keep it locked in. This is Richard Solomon with Dennis McNamara taking care of business. Hey, this is Jeff Matson, the Dark Star Orchestra, and you're listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Welcome back, everybody. Richard Solomon with Dennis McNamara. So, dare to be different. You're wearing the cap. You know, the movie's being uh, played. Let's talk about a little bit about the production, your participation, and and all the events that sort of led to that moment. Well, uh, the movie um, was seven years in the making. I was approached by a woman named Ellen Goldfarb, who uh, is the director of the film and creator of it, and uh, she wanted to know what the story was of what happened to WLIR. Because one day it disappeared and it came back as WDRE, and there was a huge and complicated reason that everything had evolved to that point in time and it was not an easy story to tell and um, what she has done magically in this film is gotten the story told in all its permutations and also have about a hundred famous people in there and some of the most incredible music artists in the world I mean Joan Jett the talking heads Billy Idol um, I, 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 I I'm just amazed you know simple minds are in there Duran Duran I mean Joan Jett did a song for the movie it's called dare to be different and it is going to have its Long Island premiere finally in a film festival the Gold Coast Festival and you can get information about them online. Where? Um, actually, at the Dare to Be Different site. It's the best place to get all your info on the film. DareToBeDifferent.com or Dare to Be Different, the Facebook page. And Dare to Be Different, or actually, it's Dare the Movie on Twitter. Okay. But you'll find it pretty fast on Twitter. And that'll tell you because the tickets are going on sale or are on sale as this is broadcast um, since we recorded this a little earlier. But um, this um, this uh, film's tickets are on sale for this festival. It's taking place November 12th. And uh, it's all around the Port Washington area where the film festival takes place. The film itself is really that story without spoiling it for the movie. But LIR always had a license problem. It predated my coming to the station. It predated actually the rock format of the station in many ways. Um, and it was carried on by the FCC in ways that um, I make no secret of saying I think were quite unfair. And I make my case pretty strongly in the film. And um, I um, do believe that uh, there was cultural robbery um, done upon the LIR listening area and the Long Island marketplace because we were very good for it. And um, the government has a lot to answer for on it, as do other unscrupulous individuals. But you know what? It's an old story, as one reporter told me not so long ago. It's 30 years old, Dennis. You know, get on with it. But uh, nonetheless, it's told 
And I think it's a great lesson for right now what's going on with the media in America and the fact that we are at a crossroads in our history and in civilization with how we're going to be media related to for the rest of our lives and the, and the lives of uh, the people that are important to us. So um, in that respect, I'm very proud of, of the film. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that we got a debut at Tribeca and it was a big hit there and it was a big hit in its LA premiere and um, there's all kinds of great negotiations going on for its future. The music itself had evolved. We've come to a point, and, I, and I, I've, I've said this to you, Richard, off mic, but you know, those of us who judged music because that's what programming music is. You make a call that I think this is, this is a good song and people are going to like it um, because you want your listeners to be happy. And we evolved in what was really the underground, progressive world of rock music for a long time until we came to a, a, a crossroads that's explained in the movie. And we decided to go in a musical, futuristic approach by doing what we call the Dare to be Different format. And that format championed a lot of music that came from the underground, um, whether it was in the U.S. or outside the U.S., largely from the U.K. and Europe. And we were very lucky that we it was a time where there was an immense amount of this music, and we loved it, and we went looking for it. And we took a very, very, you know, pro, we are going to be the new music station, and to live up to our reputation, we have to keep finding new music. And I say this all the time because it's true. The only way to find great new music is listen to everything, including the bad music. And there's no shortcuts. And so, and no one gives you back the time that you've invested in listening to all that bad music. <laughs> and let me tell you, there's plenty of bad music out there in the world, and there seems to be more of it all the time. Um, but nonetheless, I am still a firm believer that, you know, if people go out there, who are trained, because I realize now when I look back on it, I was trained. I was trained by the best in the business, and I loved music. So it was an interesting, intense training uh, done out of school more than in school, you know, in radio and the radio side and with the record companies. And and you know what? I, I ended up being a record company executive for a long time, and I had a great time there and a great deal of success working with some of the biggest artists in the world like uh, Van Morrison and Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, Broadway shows and things like that and um, it's it's just an amazing amazing thing to work with great music and to find great music but when we were doing Dare to be Different we were really stepping out on a ledge by ourselves and we did not have the support we once had by being a safe rock and roll programming major label uh, record place. So we were getting imports from, from people like Seth Rudman and we were, um, we were doing concerts with bands that no one had ever heard of, you know, free shows uh, with Epi at my father's place and later on at places like Malibu. And we were championing, um, artists that people were going, what the hell is that? Whether it was Billy Idol or Madness or the Ramones and so on. And basically, we, against all odds, got a great deal of success. We became one of the most listened to 3,000-watt Class A radio stations in the United States at that time. We were hugely, hugely successful. And we had a dynamic effect on the marketplace in a, um, in a cultural way as well as a business way, a very good business way. I mean, you know, the clubs were fighting to get on the air. The car dealers were selling cars. I mean, it was really a good time. And there was a great energy. And Long Island felt very special by having their own radio station that was cooler than the average bear, you know. So it was a great time. But then, 
At the same time, we had this license problem and this legal problem that was always hanging over our heads. So it made for um, strange bedfellows and odd dynamics. <laughs> and, you know, there was a lot of pressure on us, a lot of tension. And, it, you know, it should have lasted longer, I always felt. It should have happened for a lot longer. It, it could have. Um, but, you know, that's the way it went. So you, you look back on it, and the movie does all of this. Um, but you look back on it fondly. And with a little bit of remorse because it, it was unfair and life's not fair. But, you know, all of us, I think, look back on it um, having been better people because of it, those who were involved in it. And so, um, you know, I'm very proud about LIR. I'm proud of my career in all ways, but LIR is, is a very special part of it that it's always stuck around. <laughs> what was the relationship between WLIR and my father's place? Oh, now that's a sordid tale. <laughs> well, we got, we got, we got ten minutes. <laughs> I I came to uh, you see ten minutes. You can't do this stuff. That's a movie in its own right. Um, I I came to my father's place. Uh, you know, determined. You know, destined to be the new uh, music director. They. Um, I I knew Epi. I'd met Epi because I'd come out to see some shows at the club, and he was very nice. And um, and I didn't let you in on one show. Yeah, you didn't. No, no, no. He <laughs> took, no, no. He took our tickets for a band that didn't play. <laughs> then the record company wanted them back. Something like that happened. But um, no, it, it was a delight uh, working there because it was so easy. I recognize now. We did one of the greatest radio concerts series in history and really i picked it up these guys had innovated it i came in as the kid that did the series in new york with the bottom line i mean it was the same basic thing you know getting permissions working it out getting the truck in doing the sound checks listening to everybody bitch about the monitors um and then you know what um getting it all nervous and crazy getting you know everybody ready to be there on time to do them live and then this incredible excitement of people realizing they were live on the radio with the bands coming from this magical club in some place called Roslyn, Long Island. You know, it was, and, and, and I can tell you, people used to sit in their cars, wait for the DJ, which would be me or one of the other uh, LIR personalities, to announce the show. And then they'd run from their cars and run in because they just heard it announced in the car and now they were in the you know, they were in the actual broadcast that was on in the car. I mean, it was, you know, a bit of, uh, I guess, media awakening or madness. But there's something about live that is magical like that. And also, the bands, to a large part, rose to that occasion and put on performances that um, were better than expected in many instances. In, in, the, in the book about my father's place, there's a CD. And you really hear that. Yeah. You really yeah. hear that in yeah. the in the tracks that they selected um, to be part of the book in CD package. You yeah. definitely feel that. Yeah. That's a great book. Oh, it's a, it's a gr- great book. Um, and we did. And by the way, that's up on our YouTube site. We have the whole oh, interview great. with Steve Rosenfield on that one. Good. So, uh, Good. so uh, when the when the soundtrack came in, yeah, what was actually in it? How did it work? Because that that's like a great mystery to me. Uh, we're lucky to have in the studio <laughs> one of the engineers. Just happened to be here. Just happens to be here filming me. This is Peter Hedeman. I don't know which camera to look in. Yeah, don't even look at the camera. <laughs> Peter, Peter was hey, in Peter. the truck. So, Peter, 
you guys would get a call from me. <laughs> Someone would get a call. I'd say, all right, this Tuesday night, the, the band called The Police are going to be on live. All right, so when the police, uh, so I'll see you guys for a sound check at what time, and you pick it up from there. What happens? I right, just make sure you t- talk, talk into the mic, talk into the mic. Talk into the mic. Come on. Talk into the mic. So what would happen? So, so that afternoon... You guys would pull up in a truck, right? What was in the truck? Talk in the mic. Talk in the mic. You gotta get in. Get close. Get close. We would go pick up the truck over in. Uh, uh, okay, let's start. This no, no. Again. Get yeah. get closer. Get closer. We yeah. would pick up the truck. Yeah. Over by Manhasset Station. Yeah. And drive it to my father's place. And then uh, run the snakes into the place, make sure tone was on the line back to the radio station Absolutely. that we were still, <laughs> many times we were not. Uh, I know. And most importantly, to make sure we were in phase, because frequently we would go live, and as soon as we would go live, it would cut out and it would sound like this. And you didn't, you didn't know that was when we went out of phase. So we had a special yeah. switch in the truck that we would flip and uh, get back in phase. Right. So what was actually in the truck? How much equipment was there? We had uh, two sound workshop 1280 soundboards, um, <laughs> uh, a pair of Nakamichi um, cassette machines, a reel-to-reel recorder, wow. and a cassette machine behind the board that was uh, sem- semi-authorized. <laughs> <laughs> but there was always a copy for the band at the end of the show. That's because, really interesting. Well, because um, one, we always promised that. We always delivered it. And we delivered to them immediately afterwards. And in the case where we pre-recorded as opposed to just went live, the band's always had an option to call back and say, oh, man, we love doing it. But if you could lose this song because we were singing out of key or something. But that didn't happen that often. You know what? I think they always felt relieved that we gave them that option. But then you know what they they were so happy with the um with the way that it was handled and and I mean these guys I mean I put poor Peter on the spot there but these guys man they worked their butts off and they really did a great job and we had a variety of engineers and producers who just uh did incredible work and you know these are two track recordings these were not multi tracks so it was as it was forever and ever amen what is for you what were some of the more memorable concerts? There were, um, you know, they, there were so many. There was uh, the first one with Tommy Bolin because it was just so exciting and new, and we had to get Tommy on stage eventually because he was tempted so much. I mean, I remember uh, Joe Perry from Aerosmith doing a show with us and being a total bitch and then <laughs> coming back and blowing the roof off the place. So something happened good um, before that. I remember uh, Meatloaf. I thought Meatloaf collapsed in our live, um, you know, Bad Out of Hell broadcast. Um, he did at St. John's when I saw yeah, him. He yeah, he collapsed back there. I thought, oh, my God, he's dead. And then they run in with some oxygen, <laughs> and he gets back up and goes, let's go. And I had to go back out and introduce him. Um, I remember saving Johnny Winter from making a wrong turn and almost going in the garbage because there was a garbage dump at the back of the stage, and Johnny didn't see very well, and somebody had left him by himself. So all I thought about was bringing him on the stage thinking, we almost had the major act just end up in a garbage pit in the back. So that was a little scary. Uh, one night, John Mayall um, was playing, and they put the monitors hanging for that show, but I didn't really realize it. When running out, Mayall had a lot of equipment. Went running out to do my intro, hit my head off the side of what it turned out to be was one of these hanging monitors, and then proceeded to give John Mayall this big, big 
um, introduction because it was John Mayall. You know, if you know your British rock history, John Mayall's one of Blues the, the incredible ones. And as I'm doing the introduction, I see some girls in the front row looking at me horrified. Because I don't know that, because I hit the thing, I have blood pouring down my face. And Mayall afterwards said, that was one of the greatest intros I've ever had. <laughs> you, you lost blood for me on that intro. It was just amazing. Um, and then there were magical nights, like Charlie Daniels did the uh, Nassau Coliseum and then came over and did a live show for my father's place with Papa John Creech from the Starship. Uh, from the Starship, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, this was the same night that we just broadcast them from the Coliseum. They were just uh, so many. The Ramones, we got rained out in this horrendous nightmare of... A, an attempt at a boardwalk concert um, down at the beach in Long Beach and the make good was the Ramones at my father's place for the people who couldn't see a show because it rained and the Ramones concert that night was so magical that it may have been the ultimate rock concert ever done there but then there was the night Peter Tosh showed up and everyone thought the Rolling Stones were coming and that CD just got released recently uh, I have and, a copy thanks yeah, Debbie yeah. Terrific. Yes. yeah and so I mean I could go on and on and on but we had you know I remember Pat Metheny um, coming through there Michael Franks uh, Mahavishnu John McLaughlin you know a lot of players that you wouldn't have uh, Stefan Grappelli right yeah I mean we did Stefan Grappelli I mean, we were, you know, there was an amazing, and I remember Earl Scruggs getting a friend of his to come on stage to play piano for one track, and it's Billy Joel. Wow. Because he, he and Earl were buds. And, and I mean, we had the radio concert, and there's, you know, the hottest pop star in the world there sitting, you know, playing piano for Earl on one of Earl's songs. So it was just, you know, it, it was a magical hub, and it, it was a great place for all kinds of music. Well, and, 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 you know, things do come around and maybe there'll be a resurrection. I mean, I know that LIR sort of lives right now on the Internet. Yeah, well, there's all kinds of incarnations of it. Um, the movie and, and just what's been going on with music and the revolution of music in America, because music is still evolving. It's just, you know, we've lost record companies, we've got the cloud, you know, touring has changed in immense ways, and, and basically the way you make money has changed. It doesn't mean that money isn't being made, it is being made. It's, it's being just, made differently. Yes, it's being made very differently. There's tremendous inroads being, in being um, laid there, and also, hopefully there will continue to be um, an understanding that there's very few things as valuable as a great live concert or a great live performance, or a great artist in our lives. Well, and well got, said. And you know what? Um, as I talk about quite often, you know, it comes down to songs. we got to go back to those 45s. we got to find the great songs and then the great albums, the great collections, the great whatever you want to call them now, playlists. But it's all about great songs. Wow. And with that, this was a great show. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm, and, I'm glad to be here. And don't forget to see the movie, the WLIR movie, Dare to be Different. And, and as soon as the show's over, I'm going to Dennis's house to look at all the 45s. There you go. Fair <laughs> enough. Thanks for right. being here. Thanks to WCWP for being a great station. And thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week.